Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. Well, this year we have been working through series on our church values from the point of view of what it looks like to give our lives away in service of God and His incredible plans for this world. And so we've had series titled, I Gave My Life Away and Now I Love Extravagantly, Delight in God, Pray Without Seizing and Extend Grace. And these are values of our church. And today we're at the start of our next series, continuing to explore these values from this perspective, I Gave My Life Away and Now I Live Generously. And so over the next four weeks, we are going to look at what it means to give our our lives away in order to live generously for the purposes of serving God and extending His love here on earth. And specifically over these next four weeks, we're going to focus on what it means to apply this value of living generously when it comes to the Christian practice of missions and justice. So as you're probably beginning to guess, We're not going to be talking about living generously in the important but slightly more limited sense of how much you might give financially to building the church or helping the poor or supporting missionaries because whilst those are all very good things and important aspects of living generously, this is about much, much more than that. This is about what it means to live totally available and ready to partner with God in loving others and telling them about the good news of his redeeming plans for this world. And we are going to look at how God's generosity in his amazing love to us is to be both the spark and sustaining fuel that propels us forward as partners in this rescue mission, as carriers and agents of his love, justice, mercy, and kindness throughout this world. Now, this church, The Granary, already has a real hard for missions and justice. And we can see that in all that God is doing throughout our church, both locally and globally. But last year, my wife, Brittany, who is the lead missions and justice partner, pastor, sorry, I'm really just the support act. She approached Pastor Sue and said, it's great that we engage so strongly and regularly on topical issues of justice and programmatic issues of justice, like anti-trafficking, helping those in poverty, supporting missionaries, but I want our church to go on a journey of going deeper into understanding God's big picture theologically for missions and justice in our world. So that's what we're going to be doing over these next four Sundays. We are going to be going through the Bible to look at God's big picture for the world, which is to bring hope, healing, and restoration, and the roles that God is looking for you and me and our church to play in bringing heaven on earth here in Newcastle, but also beyond, and particularly to those places where darkness and injustice seems to be at its worst. And to do that in the coming weeks, we're going to be hearing from some excellent Bible teachers and from some of our missionaries and missions partners around the world. Next week, Pastor Dave Grunenboom from the International Justice Mission is going to talk to us about the history of biblical justice throughout the scriptures. In week three, missionaries that the granary supports around the world have worked together with Brit to share from their own personal experiences what it looks like to live on mission cross-culturally and around the world in the 21st century. And in week four, we'll have a panel with Pastor Sue, Professor John Adia, and Mark on the increasingly important issue of environmental stewardship and how caring for creation must be seen as a vital part of God's plans for our lives here on earth. And so today, as we kick this series off, 
I'm going to attempt to give you an overview of God's big picture plans for the world, from which we can understand and better find his calling to both missions and justice as a church and as individuals. And to do that, I'm quite literally going to draw you a very big picture. I'm a little bit simple like that, but hopefully you will find my simplicity helpful too. Now, this picture is one that some of you may have seen me draw before, but I just find it so helpful as a starting point. And so today I'm going to use it to set up this four-week journey ahead. So to begin with, in order to understand God's calling on your life, you must first understand why he made you. So here you are, and we are always telling our kids that they are not the center of the universe, but on this page, on this canvas, you get to be the center for now. And this part, why God made you, well, it's quite beautiful in its simplicity, but it can take a little bit of under, unpacking to understand its depths. You see, God made you to be in relationship with him. That's it. That's the whole story. The God of this universe made you purely to know you and to love you. Like I said, it's simple. It's beautiful. But to understand why God would do this, that is why he would bother going to the effort to make you and I and this world around us to be in relationship with him requires us going even further. It requires us to try and understand the very essence of who God is. And while trying to understand or define God is a little bit more complex, or very complex in fact, it's not impossible. At least it's not impossible to grasp the basics of who God is, as explained to us through his word and from the teaching of those who have studied it uh, since, since over thousands of years, so long as we know that once we have this basic grasp, we will likely then go on to spend the rest of our lives marveling at the magnificence of its ramifications and the possibilities of what God's nature and character means for us and his creation. So who is God? Well, it's easy to view God primarily as ruler, creator, or judge. And he certainly is those things and is referred to those things and to having those characteristics within the Bible. That's his little scepter and crown if my drawings are really that bad. But each of these roles is contingent upon there being a creation to rule and judge over, as if God needed something other than himself to be who he is. In this sense, such a restricted view of who God is as a ruler, creator, or judge could even seem a little bit negative, as if the purpose of God making humans and creation was to have something or rather someone to rule over, control, and subjugate, namely you and I. Now, despite some desire in all of us for order, I think if we're being honest, this picture of a God who created us simply out of a desire to rule over us doesn't sound all that great. It doesn't sound like really good news. So if God is not just a ruler, creator, or judge, what is he? Well, many scholars point to our clearest definition of who God is as coming from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, which simply says that God is love. God is love. Now, that sounds beautiful, but also a little bit hazy. Like when you catch a lyric in a song and you think, gee, that sounds nice, but you don't really understand what it meant, or even if you heard it right. So what does this mean that God is love? 
does this verse mean that God is loving or that he feels love towards us? Well, those things are certainly true, but actually the phrase God is love refers to something so much more than God's character or disposition. It describes his very essence as a relational being. To understand how God can be love requires understanding that God is not a singular entity, but a community of three. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is a three-in-one relational God. This is what Christians understand to be the doctrine of the Trinity, that this three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lives in a state of constant love and sustaining relationship. Now, this is a little bit like brain explosion territory to get your head around the Trinity. But what you need to understand for today is that at the essence of his being, God is an others-orientated, self-giving being. For all of eternity, before we were created, he has existed in this community of perfect love as Father, Son, and Spirit. This is what is meant by the phrase, God is love. He does not just have love, he is love. And that's a quote from Carissa Quinn, who's a PhD scholar at the Bible Project. And it is from this perfect place of love and community that he creates you and I, not as puppet servants or worshiping robots, but as sons and daughters, co-heirs and partners for his good, just, loving plans and purposes for this world. That's incredible. And it's understanding God's nature that gives word, gives meaning to the words in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image according to our likeness, that is, in the image and likeness of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relating to one another in perfect love and community. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the animals, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created humanity. Male and female, he created them. To be made in his image means to be made as a reflection of the God who is himself love and whose desire is for deep connection and relationship. But even more than just having a relationship solely with God, this passage and the beginning of Genesis also shows that we are to be in relationship with one another and also with God's creation. So firstly, how are we designed to be in connection and relationship with others? Well, that is further unpacked in Genesis chapter 2, where God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. This reveals God's knowledge of us and our knowledge of ourselves, that it is not good for us to be alone, that we desire connection, vulnerability, unity. The writer of Genesis includes what might seem like an odd detail to some in his story about Adam and Eve, which is that they were naked in the garden. But what this was to express is that in this original relationship, there was no shame, no hiddenness. Instead, we have this ideal picture of total relational safety, vulnerability, trust, and acceptance of one another. Secondly, in looking at our relationship with creation, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 expands on what it means that God places us in charge over the earth as the writer adds that we are placed in God's creation, his garden, this Eden that existed at the beginning, 
to cultivate it and to take care of it. That is to make creation flourish, to bring forward its God-given potential to sustain us and to bring us joy. And in this picture, when these things work in relationship, God with humankind, mankind with one another, humankind with the environment, we have this system of wholeness, this system of health, this system which is reflected in the biblical word for shalom. And we also have the systems that govern these relationships working well as well. Now, it's hard to think of these things in the Garden of Eden, but I'm talking about the social systems that govern our relationships with one another, the political systems that speak to how we govern our interactions, economic systems that speak about how we do our transactions, and also our religious systems which speak to how we organize our worship of God. So you have these systems governing these relationships, which in God's created order would also be in right functioning and in good health. God's plan for this big picture, for his creation and all that is in it, is that it would be a place of flourishing, of abundance, of worship, of safety, of freedom, of harmony and of wholeness. And this is all achieved through each part of creation existing in right relationship with one another. It begins with the relationship of the Trinity, which continues to God's relationship with humankind, which we are to express in our relationship with one another and with his creation, which will be regulated by systems that are in good health. The Hebrew word for describing this perfect state of right relationships is shalom, which is most commonly translated in our Bibles to the word peace. But unlike how we use the word peace, which is typically used to describe the absence of conflict, the Hebrew word shalom also carries with it the presence of connection, of completion, of wholeness. As Cornelius Platinga writes in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fully employed. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be, the full flourishing of human life in all aspects as God intended it. However, we know that this is not the state of the world we live in today. Why? Well, as another theologian, this time Mike Whitmer, in his book, Heaven is a Place on Earth, explains, unfortunately, the shalom of creation was shattered by the sin of Adam and Eve. They broke the shalom peace when they disobeyed God and followed their own desires. And since rebellion against God is always accompanied by animosity towards others, it wasn't long until their sin had spoiled their relationships with the rest of the world. The trajectory of this human sin then ricochets into the furthest corners of creation, destroying first ourselves, then human society, and finally the animals and even the earth itself. No aspect of shalom is spared from the careening path of sin. And we can see this all around us. We have issues like modern slavery, individuals literally enslaving others. We have environmental destruction as we put to waste God's good earth that he has given to us. 
We have people alienated from God and struggling to understand their value, their worth, their dignity. And of course, we have systems marred by corruption, by lies, by deceit, by brokenness, by authoritarianism, by chaos. Is there a solution to the predicament that we find ourselves in? Well, clearly, if there is, it's not going to come from ourselves. Because try as we might, we know all humans are prone to stuffing things up. Now, you might not have enslaved anyone, and you might even drive a hybrid car and uh, try and eat vegan so as to have less of an impact on the environment. However, we all contribute to the brokenness we see in this world, whether in ways small or large, through our propensity to act in selfishness or with anger or with jealousy. It is a matter of fact, a part of our fallen human nature. So if the solution is not going to come from us, if human efforts are in and of themselves going to be insufficient, where can we turn to look for hope, to look for salvation, to put this picture back together again? Well, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were told to look to God. It says in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, you will keep in perfect peace, that is experiencing God's state of shalom, those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. So for those who trust in God, their lives will be kept in a state of shalom, of peace. Therefore, the prophet continues, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself is the rock eternal. But as we know in reading the Old Testament, even with God's proximity and presence to the Israelites, that was not enough for them to keep them from stuffing things up over and over again. It's the same for those of us who've been Christians for a long time. We still know that we have the propensity to make a mess of it. Knowing this, God through the prophet Isaiah speaks of one to come, a Messiah or Savior who will deliver final and perfect peace. This time in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This, of course, is Jesus. And how was this Messiah to bring peace? Again, Isaiah continues his explanation in chapter 53. Surely he took up our infirmities, our mistakes, and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus came to earth and lived the perfect life that we could not live. He was sent down to earth by God as the literal embodiment of what it looked like to live a life fully balanced and in total harmony and right relationship with God, with others, with the created environment and with the systems that were around him. But his example of being this pure peace, this pure love, this pure kindness was such an affront to the religious political, cultural, and social, and economic rulers of the day that they put him to death. They could not handle his subvertive plans or love or teachings that were all to do with restoring true worship, true justice, 
true harmony to these broken relationships, so they silenced him. He wasn't pierced and stricken by God because God had a need to inflict some kind of corporate punishment on his own son. No, that was what mankind in its fallenness did to the son of God. We could not handle his perfection. However, what man, what evil, what uh, death uh, intended for bad, God turns around for good. And we see that Jesus, through his defeat of death, through his resurrection from the grave, overcomes those evil plans and shows that his power and God's love and his plan for redemption is stronger than any of the brokenness that we could throw at it. And we read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, for God was pleased to have all his fullness, the fullness of the Trinity, to dwell in Jesus as he came to earth and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The cross is the healing instrument that brings that reconciliation, that restoral of that central relationship that we could not bring ourselves. And from the cross and from that restoration, we find restoration in our relationship with others, restoration in our relationship with the environment, and the ability to redeem and restore the systems that govern us. But we know that this story is not yet complete. We live in the in-between from God having sent his son and having saved us to when all things are set right, and that will come when he returns. It's incredible. So what does this mean for missions and justice in our world today? Well, it means that we are to both proclaim this good news of God's restoring plans for the world in both word and in deed. We are to be both evangelists and doers for God's kingdom. And importantly, in this holistic picture of God's big plans for the world, his big plans for Shalom, we can see why the granary, our understanding of missions and justice includes several things. Firstly, it includes this critical task of helping people to restore their relationship with God. That is what we live for here at the Granary Church, connecting people in their true identity to the God who loves them and wants to save them. But it's also about working to bring shalom locally and globally through charity, through practicing compassion, through being active agents of God's change. We see that locally with granary care, with supporting work in the schools out towards Maitland. And then we see that globally as well in our partnerships with Compassion uh, in Uganda, where we also have our Muko Health Clinic, our relationship with the Mana Ministries in India, with Love on the Move, uh, with our missionaries around the world, and with our anti-slavery work with IJM. And we also practice advocacy, that is speaking up and speaking out for unjust systems that we see in our society that lead to things like racial injustice and environmental injustice and other social injustices too. We act, we evangelize, we speak up. This is what it means to practice missions and justice. And we have quite a journey ahead of us in the next few weeks to explore this together. And we can't wait to go on that journey with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Take some time now to consider what really stood out to you in that message. God has been speaking to you and what is it that He said to you? If you're in the room with someone else, turn and share with them what stood out to you. And I say to them, how can I pray for you? 
share with them something that you love about God and something that you're thankful for this week or phone someone and ask them those questions. What do you love about God? What are you thankful for this week and how can I pray for you? Bless you and have a great week.